Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. G20, overshadowed by geopolitics. From September the 9th to the 10th, G20 leaders gathered in New Delhi, India for this year's summit under the theme One Earth, One Family, One Future. Geopolitics, however, seems to have stolen the show at the premier global forum for economic cooperation, especially if you read the media headlines. G20 Presidency India identified six priorities, including sustainable development, food and energy security, and reforms of development financing. However, media largely focused on two details, the absence of top leaders from certain countries or the conflict in Ukraine. So what consensus has been reached that may relieve pressure on cost of living and boost global economic recovery? What momentum will the meeting bring about on global governance? Or to what extent has this platform been cluttered by divergent political geopolitical interests at the expense of the overall interests of citizens of the world. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. I'm pleased to be joined from Shanghai, China, by Huang Jing, university professor and director of the Institute of the U.S. and Pacific Studies at Shanghai International Studies University from New Delhi, India by Swarang Singh, visiting professor at the Department of Political Science of Jawaharlal Nehru University and from Washington, D.C., the U.S. by Klaus Laris, distinguished professor of history and international affairs at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. As usual, it's a pleasure to have all of you. Let me go to our guest in India, I guess, first, because the, the summit was just uh, wrapped up in India and the theme, One Earth, One Family, One Future. Why the focus on this? It's, um, what is your take? Thank you for having me on your show today. Uh, let me say, yes, there were issues where that were complex and largely uh, driven by uh, the divisive and polarizing geopolitics. Uh, especially issue of Ukraine was uh, tough to build consensus upon. Uh, but finally, uh, India did produce a New Delhi final declaration. And indeed, this was uh, announced at end of the first session itself, which I think is a great uh, achievement so that the second and third session, India had enough time to consult with leaders in terms of nitty gritties of implementing several things that they had uh, really agreed to work together. Second point, I think this is also the largest final declaration so far. In fact, estimates are this is more than double than any of the 17 uh, such declarations announced before this. And it has several very actionable areas, specific targets. For example, reducing the digital gender gap to half by 2030. And several similar things are on, on example. And then I think third very quick point, as was reiterated by Indian leadership to say, yes, geopolitics is influencing but the mandate of G20, which is now 21, is not really to deal with geopolitics. The original mandate of G20, now 21, was to deal with macroeconomic trends and manage those. And therefore, not to make hostage these kind of issues which are important right now to, for the global uh, peace and prosperity to geopolitics is how finally the consensus on Ukraine was brought about by simply asserting that all of them really continue to believe in what they have been saying at United Nations Security Council so that 
rest of the large number of issues, 83 items and 39 attachments of several research groups and, and study groups that were uh, producing their recommendations, mm -hmm. they are large amount of other areas where I think consensus was built. And the fact that within first 10 minutes, Africa was not being negotiated. It was being brought to the big yeah. table to sit as a permanent member was another big clincher of, of this mm -hmm. meeting. Professor Huang, what is your take? Because uh, when I read the theme, one world, one earth, one family, one future, it reminds me of the uh, motto of the 2008 Olympic Games, one world, one dream. Uh, and actually, Chinese Premier Li, at his speech to the summit, also highlighted the idea that this seems to be very much in line with China's vision for the world as a community with a shared future for mankind. What is your take? What are the real important, urgent issues that really need to be discussed and what is China's take going into this meeting? I think as human beings, we all live in the same village. That's why I say it's a common hope or expectation that we should come together and make our life better. I think this uh, mental by the G20 and, and also what China put forward during the Olympic, I think the same reflect this kind of joint wish or joint expectation and hope that we should go towards that direction. But just as you mentioned, we do have something that, you know, really divides us, especially between Global North and the Global South. And you mentioned that the media seems to be focused on geopolitical issues. But we also know that the Global North does have kind of dominance on the discourse of international affairs. And the Global South is deeply involved in quite a few conflicts. The first one, of course, is the Ukraine conflict. Of course, they want to draw attention to what matters to them. But the majority of these countries are not the global south. If we look at what happened, they just convened a two global south summit, the BRICS summit and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization summit. You can see the difference. And you also can see that the global south two summit I just mentioned, and this one, what India insisted upon, is actually consistent with each other. But when the G7, the Global North group, and now the Global North is also participating in G20, of course, they want to try to drive or lead, so-called, quote-unquote, lead this kind of discourse of international affairs into their directions. And that's why we have this kind of gap between what we really want to do, that is to fix our economy, we're all under huge pressure about economy, and what we need to avoid, that's a conflict. This kind of gap, I think, again, reflect some differences between Global mm -hmm. North and the Global South. Mm -hmm. Professor Lara's, yeah, Professor Lara's, one of the uh, most notable achievements of this summit is, of course, the inclusion of the African Union as a permanent member to the G20 group. China says that uh, it is the first country that explicitly expresses support for the African Union's membership in the G20. How important do you think it is for the G20 and for Africa? It's very important. I would say the G20, the recent G20 summit was a very successful summit. A lot of credit goes to India, who chaired it, who convened it, who organized it, who brought the final communique to fruition. There has been uh, accusations that the language on Russia was kind of softer than many countries had hoped. But in order to get a consensus, to get a compromise together, that seemed to be necessary. And the United States and other Western countries supported that. Um, there was a lot of talk about Ukraine, as you rightly pointed out, but there also was a lot of talk and decision making 
on the global south. And admitting the African Union as a 21st uh, member was clearly part of that discussion. And that must be regarded as quite a huge success, which was supported by all G20 members, both from the global north and from the global south. So I think in that respect, there was a great consensus achieved. And again, uh, a lot of credit goes to India for having brought that about. But it was supported by the United States, by the Europeans, and also by all the other Global South members of the G20, and also Russia and China supported that. The uh, interesting contrast is who is new, who, who are there, and who are not there. As I mentioned, a lot of the media focused on who were not there, notably including the top leader from China. We'll get to that in just a moment, and also why possibly is driving China to make that decision to send the premier. But let's focus on the real issue. As uh, all of us have mentioned, the world is in urgent need to tackle the real issues. For instance, in the declaration that was reached, there was this paragraph about uh, fiscal stability. It says that we reiterate the need for well-calibrated monetary, fiscal, financial and structural policies to promote growth, reduce inequalities and maintain macroeconomic and financial stability. Professor Singh, how urgent is that in addressing the kind of economic or livelihood pressure that countries are facing around the world, regardless whether they are north or south? The cost of living, for instance, for a lot of people is about the next meal. Thank you, Lucian, for bringing the focus to what is the core mandate of the G20 and now 21, which is to look at macroeconomics. And a whole lot of section of the final declaration, as you just mentioned, deals with these issues, whether it is trade or it is investments or it is fundamentally multilateral development banks requiring reformation. And a volume of part one study of experts group on this is attached with final declaration. The second volume is supposed to be coming soon and therefore a virtual summit is proposed before end of Indian presidency in November. And fundamentally, lot of new innovative ideas have been placed in the final declaration as to how to broad base the raising of capital. And incidentally, both the World Bank chief and IMF chief were sitting in the meeting as well. And not just find new supporters and suppliers of capital in terms of going to countries beyond G7, going to countries within, for example, private resources to be also you know, sort of used for raising such capital and also to expand the countries, expand the sectors in which World Bank should be participating. We'll, we'll get to that in just a moment, really. But uh, sorry for inter interrupting, Professor Singh. Time is really limited. Professor Huang, let me go to you. What are the difficulties, however, in coordinating among major economies to calibrate their monetary, fiscal, financial policies in order to achieve uh, financial stability? Uh, first and foremost, obviously, there are differences in terms of level of development. The developed countries and developing countries have different demands on the issues, for example, physical stability and so on and so forth. How to overcome those differences is a challenge. Secondly, we know that after Ukraine war broke out, we have, the, for the first time after industrialization, as I can remember, that a, a, a currency that is US dollars has been weaponized. And that's one. And second, in order to tame the inflation, the United States has been continuously hiked the interest, which, of course, a product of this, a side product, whatever, is a short supply of American dollars. And, of course, the ongoing inflation, which the hike of interest has very limited effect on that. So all of us have facing this problem. And that's why we have, first and foremost, a physical 
risk of physical stability. And second, we have a huge pressure. The economy is going slow or even down stagnation. Last but not the least, given all of that, still we have some countries, I mean, the United States, still do not give up this weaponization of dollars, do not give up the all sanctions which has undermined. Of course, we need to. We need to make the, the, the great suffers. But all those kind of measures has undermined the economy that we have to share as a human being. All of this should be discussed. I can agree with other two panelists. India has did a good job, has done a good job in trying to bring us all together. But that does not mean we have solved all those issues. Right. Professor Lares, how difficult it is to put words into action. I mean, for instance, uh, the United States agreed to the need for well-calibrated monetary fiscal policy, but when actually deciding on domestic fiscal policy or financial policy, they will take their national interest first. Well, that is what every country does. That includes China, that includes the Europeans, that includes India. Every country puts its interests first. And that but we don't have an international the, currency that is used everywhere in the world. No, that is no, the, that is no, the difference. It is kind of unfair to uh, accuse the United States of weaponizing their currency because, you know, it is all because of the Ukraine war. If the Ukraine war hadn't broken out, if Russia had not invaded, if Russia was not the aggressor and there was no war in Ukraine, we would have a much more stable economic and financial situation in the world and the United States would not have been tempted to weaponize its currency. So to blame the United States is not quite right. We need to blame Russia and what Russia has done. When you look at supply chain problems, when you look at the food chain problems, the grain deal is still not reinstated. When you look at the huge energy problems all over the world, not just in Europe and the Western world, but particularly in the global south and the indebtedness of the global south, all that has come about, maybe not all, but a lot of that has come about because of okay. uh, Russia's aggression yeah. against Ukraine. Professor Laris, I, I get your point. We have very limited time. I'm going to ask my guests in India or China to react. And this is the kind of, you know, tit for tat or debate that is keeping us from making progress in important actions. Professor Singh, is there any way out of this? Who is the culprit? I think, Lucian, if you are referring to the fact that the debate uh, in India and uh, in much of the world about President Xi Jinping not being there in the summit meeting, and then I think a simple one-line clarification from uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, could have stopped all the speculations that this has triggered. Speculations talking about domestic linkages, bilateral linkages, global linkages. President Xi was, uh, you know, just 10 days before that was uh, in Johannesburg and Indian Prime Minister was also there and they were able to build consensus and bring in six new members. Uh, but then Xi Jinping not being able to join a New Delhi summit did trigger certain speculations. This is bound to be China is world's second largest economy. And particularly when it comes to implementing that uh, consensus built in New Delhi, uh, China's contribution will be required in that because fundamentally this is not a binding declaration. Uh, G21 is not an organization, it is a grouping. So. Every nation will have to go back and decide how they want okay. to implement uh, the consensus they have yeah. built here. Uh, 
Yeah, Professor Singh, you uh, mentioned the choice of the Chinese uh, representative at the meeting. Uh, I would like to, as you said, two weeks ago in South Africa, Chinese uh, President Xi just met with Indian uh, Prime Minister Modi and China stressed that improving China-India relations serves the common interests of the two countries and peoples and is also conducive to peace, stability, development of the world and the region in case there is any ambiguity with regard to China's position or to India, I think this has to be laid out first. But Professor Huang, I, I, I let the podium to you. What is your reaction? Of course, people expected that Xi Jinping would be at the G20, and uh, so did I. But the problem is that she has made quite a few trips abroad recently, and we know that China is also under huge pressure economically, and the Chinese economy is struggling, and I hope it gets better. And this G20, like we said, the focus of G20 is the economic issues. It's not geopolitical issues. And Premier Li Qiang is topmost leaders in charge of China's economy. And he knows what China needs in terms of economic development. He also knows China can deliver or can cooperate with others in terms of economic de development. And also, let's keep in mind, he's also a state head. He's a premier. He's a number two guy in China. I think it's a very appropriate. It's a good choice to send Li Qiang uh, to this uh, in reaction to the question about and he's in charge of in, in, in reaction to the question about uh, weaponization of the United States, who is to blame? Uh, do you have a response, Professor Huang? Well, I think that's a fact. The United States weaponized its dollars, and this is the first time ever after industrialization. All right, let's, let's face uh, another very important issue here, which is about the, the uh, SDG, Sustainable Development Goals. Another sentence in the paragraph says that at the midpoint to 2030, the global progress on SDGs is off track with only 12% of the targets on track. I found that number to be quite shocking. Honestly, we are not even a quarter on track. We are, we're way behind. So, Professor Laris, let me go to you. What do you think will be the impact of this? I mean, where could some momentum be injected into working together to achieve the SDGs? Well, as I, as I said at the beginning, on the whole, I think that was a very successful summit. We have mentioned various uh, initiatives which have come out of it already. That is a reform of the World Bank to make more resources, lending resources available to the World Bank, which probably will be implemented. Then also a railway link between India, uh, the Middle East and Europe, and also between Zimbabwe and Angola was being uh, contemplated and will be explored further. These are all initiatives which need to be applauded. Also, we talked about the admission of the, of the African Union and its 50 member states. So 90% of the entire population will be represented by the G20. There were other, you know, digitalization initiatives. So this is positive. So I believe that uh, there was a lot of working together. Of course, there are divisions regarding Ukraine, but even those have been played down in order to reach a consensus. And I think that needs to be applauded. We cannot expect to have a real family meeting that every country in the world agrees with each other that there are no disputes remaining. Of course not. There are severe disputes remaining. Ukraine is just one of them. But that it was possible to get that communique out and to bridge these very difficult gaping yeah. uh, disputes 
developing countries. That okay. needs to be applauded. Mm -hmm. Well, another very important um, content in the declaration is the reform of international financial and uh, lending institutions. The declaration says that the countries underscored the need for enhancing representation and voice of developing countries in decision-making in global international economic and financial institutions in order to deliver more effective, credible, accountable and legitimate institutions. Um, there are basically two parts. One part is about quota or voting rights among the IMF. The other is about uh, extending the lending capacity of World Bank. Let's break it down here. First of all, on the reform of the voting rights in the IMF, the United States, its Treasury Undersecretary for International Affairs, um, said in a speech right before the summit that this year, the United States will support an increase in quotas for broad increase across all members with the goal of strengthening the IMF as a shareholder institution at the core of the global financial safety net. Um, Professor Singh, um, so the US is uh, acquiesced to demands by developing countries to increase their voice in the IMF? I think Britain Woods institutions have no option but to reform. Otherwise, there are a lot of parallel institutions like New Development Bank, like Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, Asian Development Bank, and possibly new initiatives are going to come up. And you see final declaration from New Delhi talking about building a common consensus even on cryptocurrency. So the fact that world has changed, China today has GDP, which is 16% of the global GDP, but only 5% vote weightage in IMF. Now, this kind of disjunction also is visible in case of India, which is now the fifth largest, going to be the third largest economy. So there, it's not a matter of option. It's not a sweet choice for Britain Woods institutions to begin to reform themselves, including WTO. The dispute settlement uh, arrangements have to be revived and strengthened is again provided in, in the final declaration. Yeah. So it's not a matter of option. Okay, uh, Professor Huang, can we expect some concrete changes before the end of this year, for instance, in the voting rights of developing countries in the IMF? I agree with uh, Professor Singh. This is inevitable as we are living in a very much changed world. The underpresentation of the developing countries, including India and China, is, is not fair. But frankly, realistically speaking, I do not expect any concrete changes Why in not? the short term. Uh, because, you know, this is actually it's about redivision of resources and the power and the weight. Or, or weight. And uh, those who, who are there already, uh, even though United States, I, I think it's, it's great the United States proposed this kind of reform. But if we put real sense in actions, I believe a hard negotiation, the bargaining will, will proceed. Mm -hmm. And I do not expect, again, a sense will change dramatically in the foreseeable future. Well, as I mentioned, there is also the, the, the U.S. urge to reform the uh, World Bank. To Their plan is to enlarge its lending capacity from four middle-income and low-income countries by $25 billion. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said in Delhi that it's not just a question of responding to China. I don't know why it is a question in that regard, but she says it's a question of addressing long-standing global challenges, and uh, the United States is hoping other countries will follow suit. Um, exactly what is the consideration behind the U.S. proposal of such a plan, Professor Laris? 
Well, the United States is usually accused or just claimed that when the United States does something, it is in reaction to China. And sometimes that is quite correct, but not always. And I think there is a deep insight which has developed in the United States, but also in Europe. That Well, but uh, Yellen said herself, this is not just a question of responding China, meaning no, it exactly. is a question uh, responding to China, but not no, just well, that. Well, we can split that. But let me say, I think there is a deep insight in Europe and in the United States that they have neglected the Global South and that they need to do something about that, including by reforming the World Bank, by letting the African Union also become a member of the G20. So there is an insight that the Global South has been neglected by the Western world and needs that needs to be rectified. Partially, that is also a reaction to China, because China has been much more active in Africa, for example, but also increasingly in Latin America. And that has really been a wake-up call to the Western world to say, wow, China is doing an awful lot of activities and initiatives of an economic nature often in these countries, so we need to do something as well. So it, is, it has something to do with China, but not solely, I would say. There is another big deal that's announced by the United States, Professor Singh, uh, which is the uh, project to link Europe, Middle East and uh, South Asia. Mr. Biden said it's a big deal. It's really a big deal. But how big of a deal is this? Is it really a big deal? I think as an idea, it's uh, out of box. And uh, I think a groundbreaking idea in that sense to build a global partnership for infrastructure investment and for india it is particularly you know a breakthrough because india has been trying to connect to west asia and europe but because on the way come pakistan and afghanistan the land connectivity has always been complex for india and now here is an option of using shipping and railways to connect to west asia and to europe using that route which is as we say if you double the speed you triple your economy so it's part of that prosperity drive that India now has had for several years. And last very quick point I want to add, I know mm -hmm. there are several issues you are discussing today. Look at the relationship that has transformed between India and Middle East, countries of Middle East, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Israel, that often have difficulties among themselves, are all very good partners of India. UAE is the third trading partner of India, second largest destination mm -hmm. for exports of India. Yeah. So okay. linking to that region and from there to Europe is important for us. Yeah. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to my guests, Professor Huang Jing, Professor uh, Swaran Singh and Professor uh, Klaus Laris joining us from different parts of the world. And with that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point. Twenty-five hundred years ago, an old man rode on his buffalo and headed west of China. Before he vanished into the wild, he left behind a book of 5,000 words, which for the next two and a half millennia would have shaped the Chinese way of thinking. Subscribe to the sayings of Lao Tzu and find out why generals with wisdom yield after winning the ultimate battle and how staying behind just might help you get ahead of others. The Sayings of Lao Tzu is available on all major podcast platforms.